morning. Uh, our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what, if, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And, he, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ed. <clears throat> I know what some of you might be thinking right now. Does this church actually believe this happened? Does this church actually believe in the existence of demons, demon possession, and exorcisms? Now, I thought there were college-educated people here people with master's degrees, even PhDs. This stuff that we read about belongs in the horror movies. I didn't realize that there were modern people who actually believe in demons today. Perhaps that's you. Well, let me say a few things in response. First, if you are part of the 75% of Americans who believe there is a God, then what prevents you from believing that there is such a thing as Satan and his demons? If you are someone who believes that there is true goodness in this world, what prevents you from believing that there's such a thing as true evil? After all, if you believe in justice, then you believe in injustice, truth, falsehood. They, they come together. Second, how much of your 
disbelief stems from your perception of reality and logic and, and science and truth and, and how much of your disbelief comes from your culture. True in white European secular humanistic cultures, people tend to have a hard time believing in the reality of spiritual forces. But once you leave the, the white European secular humanistic domain and travel the globe, you'll discover that large swaths of South America, Central America, Africa, Asia have no problem believing in the reality of spiritual forces. Which makes you wonder, huh, maybe my disbelief has more to do with my culture than it does reality. Third, I understand that in primitive days, ancient cultures, they had a tendency of attributing anything they couldn't explain to the supernatural world. Whenever they encountered bizarre human behavior, they were quick to say that must be demonic. So if someone all of a sudden in the middle of town broke out in a seizure because they didn't understand the reality of epilepsy, they would be quick to say he's under demonic attack. Or if someone heard voices in their head and started talking to those voices because they didn't understand the reality of schizophrenia, they were quick to say he must be possessed. And so it's kind of this God of the gaps theory, but more of a devil of the gaps. Whatever I can't explain, it must be spiritual. Now that may be true of certain societies and cultures back then, but you can't say that describes biblical Christianity. Because when you read the Bible, you'll see that it is much more nuanced much more multifaceted in its understanding of human behavior. For example, we looked a couple chapters ago about how Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. Notice how the Bible doesn't say that the man's hand is withered because of a demon. No, it's withered because it's withered. We have genetics gone awry. Tim Keller notes that in Matthew 4:24. It, it states that Jesus healed everyone, and it begins to list the different types of people that were healed, including lunatics and those possessed by demons. The Bible sees mental insanity as a distinct category from demon possession. They didn't call anyone who was mentally insane possessed. They were different. In Luke chapter 13, verse 4, Jesus addresses a rumor that was spreading around. You see, a tragic incident happened in those days where the Tower of Siloam collapsed and fell and killed 18 bystanders. And so people were going around trying to understand what happened, and they argued these 18 people who died must have been more sinful than other people. They moralized the situation and said, God must have punished them. But Jesus is quick to, to explain, no, they weren't more sinful than anyone else. 
You see, the Bible is much more nuanced. It's not simplistic in its understanding of why things happen in this world. It's not quick to say everything is because of a demon. We spent some time last year looking at the story of Joseph. We see how he comes from descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we see just how prevalent deceit and lying is in their lives. Everyone is lying to one another. And we saw how it's not because a demon of deception is influencing them to lie to one another. Rather, what we have is the influence of family. Family of origin. They lie because they grew up in a home that is filled with lies. And so I share this to help you see that the Bible is much more nuanced in its exegesis of human nature. It doesn't have a one-size-fits-all diagnosis to everything that may seem bizarre to us. Some things are biological, some things are familiar, some things are psychological, some things are spiritual. And here is where we have spiritual forces at play. We meet a man besieged by demons. And his behavior isn't explained by his upbringing. It's not explained by mental illness. It's explained because he's being in, uh, attacked by demons. And he is known as a garrison demoniac. And if there's one word I could use to describe the demoniac, it is this, uncontrollable. No one can control him. This is made explicit in the repetition of the phrase, no one, in verses 3 and 4. Let me highlight that for you. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. No man, no earthly constraints, no shackles, no bindings, no lock could restrain him. This man can't even control himself. We read that day and night he went around shrieking and cutting himself with stones. And as a result of his uncontrollable behavior, he is banished from society, pushed to the outskirts of the city where he spent his days living in a cemetery. You might wonder, how in the world does someone live in a cemetery? Remember, back then, a lot of their tombs were subterranean caves, similar to the one that Jesus was buried in. And so poor people, the homeless, the destitute, often would take advantage of these tombs when they had nowhere else to live. And in verse 9, we discover why this man is so uncontrollable. When Jesus asked for his name, he responds, my name is Legion, for we are many. That word Legion is a Roman term used to describe a significant army. Some theologians argue that the, the size of a legion consisted of 2,000 soldiers. And so 2,000 demons inhabited this man, which explains why 2,000 pigs go over the cliff. Now, I don't know definitively if 
there were 2,000 demons in this man, but it's safe to say that he was inhabited by many demons. And so the picture we have of this demoniac is someone who is completely helpless, someone who is completely hopeless. We picture a man who is a trophy of Satan's influence and power. In the Gospels, I dare say he may be the most pitiful creature Jesus ever comes across. If there was a person that Satan owned, if there was a person that the angels would say he has no hope, it would be this man, the Gerasene demoniac. And as I reflected on this demoniac and pictured his existence, and saw how he burst through all of his fetters, all of his chains, how he lived in perpetual agony. I couldn't help but think, this guy represents us. There is a demoniac in all of us, is there not? How many of you are in complete control of your life? How many of you are in complete control of the words that come out of your mouth, of your actions, of your thoughts? Anyone here have no problem with their diet? No problem with eating only healthy food, not eating too much, not eating too little, only eating enough. How many of us have complete control over our words? That even if we're angry, even if we're tired, even if we're hangry, the words that flow from our mouth are always edifying, always full of love and peace, never biting, never sarcastic, never hurtful, never mean. How many of us are in complete control of our spending. We only buy those things that we believe are good and helpful, needful. We only buy things because we, everything we buy, we see through the lens of being a steward of God, that this is not my own, this is for the advancement of his kingdom. How many of us are in complete control of our lust. Only watching that which is pure. Only thinking those things that are noble and right. One thing I notice these days is how prominent the, the option to click on an in, incognito web browser is. Why do we need that? Why do we not want someone to track our search history? How many of us are in complete control of our coveting, our envy, our jealousy, our greed, our complaining, our grumbling? There's a reason why we make resolutions every new year. It's because we break resolutions every year. 
our inability to control ourselves may not be as obvious as the Gerasene demoniac, but put each one of us underneath the microscope and, and look at the attitudes and thoughts of our hearts, and we'll see that we are just as out of control as this guy is. We've tried so many numerous ways to motivate us, to help us become more patient, more gentle, more generous, more selfless, more loving, more dedicated, more hardworking. We said to ourselves, I'm not going to watch my phone for this many hours in a day. I'm not going to spend this much screen time. And we come up with all kinds of tricks to help motivate us, but we fail. We break through our constraints and we end up hurting ourselves and those we love. Why do we have such a hard time with control? It's because the source of all of our thoughts, words, and actions, our hearts are depraved, they're sinful. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? God is amazed at how deceitful our hearts have become. And because our hearts are broken and stained by sin, because our hearts are misaligned and not centered on God, but trying to find a center on the things of this world, we can't help ourselves, we can't control ourselves. If anything, we're enslaved to our impulses, our pride, our passions, and the flesh. And our inability to control ourselves is reflected in human history. For centuries, mankind has tried to conquer two landscapes, the landscape of nature and the landscape of human nature. We've tried to gain control over our, our environment and gain control over ourselves. And at the turn of the 20th century, in the early 1900s, there was a lot of optimism in the air. Because of technological advancements, we're building cars, we're learning how to fly because of Freud and his insights into human uh, psychology, because of Darwin and his understanding of nature around him, mankind was optimistic that one day, soon enough, we will have conquered nature and human nature. But oh, how times have changed. How many violent deaths have there been in the last century? They called World War I the war to end all wars. Wasn't that a lie? Genocide, infanticide, human trafficking, slavery, racism, classism. The pandemic has shown us just how little control we have over nature. Even through our global efforts of putting the best and brightest minds together to beat this one measly virus, we have virtually been held hostage the past two years. The pandemic has shown how little control we have over human nature. We're more divided, 
more skeptical, more suspicious of man than ever before. Dystopian pictures of the future far outnumber utopian pictures. There's a reason for that. And so the point I'm trying to make is that there is a demoniac in all of us. This demoniac, as out of control as he is, really is a manifestation of our own hearts and our society as a whole. We are an uncontrollable mess. Filled with addicts, filled with doing things that we don't want to do, that we know are bad for us, and yet we still do. Where is our hope? Thankfully, the demoniac isn't the only character in our story. If uncontrollable is the word that describes the demoniac, then complete control describes Jesus. Jesus is calm, cool, collected. Our passage leaves no doubt that he is in control. He has superiority. He has authority. And it's revealed in a number of ways. First, we see it revealed in verse 5, where upon seeing Jesus from afar, the demoniac sprints and runs not away from Jesus, as you might expect. He runs to Jesus. Why? Because he knows there's no point running away from Jesus. You can't hide from him. Now, for most people, when you see a legion of demons coming towards you, that's when you run, right? That's what every horror movie does. That's when your eyes get big and you brace yourself and your heart starts pumping. You're scared. But nowhere does Jesus flinch, cower, hesitate. He is not scared at all. The only one who is scared is the demoniac himself. They cry out in verse 7, Do not torment me. Another detail that reveals just how powerful Jesus is, is found in verse 7. I want you to notice what the demoniac calls Jesus. Verse 7 says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What's striking about this title is its length. Up until now, Jesus has been, been called Jesus of Nazareth, or perhaps the Son of Man. In the other verse, the Son of God. But the demoniac, he calls him Jesus, son of the most high God. It's the lengthiest description to Jesus thus far. Why? Well, commentators agree that back then in their world, when it came to spiritual warfare, one way you can gain leverage and power over your opponent is if you knew the opponent's specific name. So what the demoniac is trying to do is gain control over Jesus by trying to guess Jesus' full name and title. Of course, if Jesus is son of the most high God, which he is, you can't control that even if you know his name. And so the demon 
fails in his attempt to influence Jesus, to control Jesus, and only has one option, and that's to beg. Jesus, don't send us out of the country. Jesus, give us permission to go into the pigs. And so we see that Jesus has power not only over casting this demon, these demons out, but also where these demons go. There's no question then in our passage who Jesus is, who is in control, who is supreme. Jesus is king, and Jesus is Lord. But as we picture Jesus in total control, exhibiting his fearless, confident power, his unflinching authority, I want you to realize that healing this demoniac, rescuing this demoniac, would come at a cost. We don't see that cost being paid here, but later on, we see that there is a cost that has to be paid in order to rescue us from the curse of sin, a price has to be paid. And later in Mark 10, 45, Jesus would declare, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me ask you, where do we find the word ransom associated with? We think of kidnappings, right? If you want your daughter back, pay the ransom. Someone is held captive, someone is in bondage, and a ransom must be paid to free that person from captivity, from bondage. The Gerasene demonic was clearly in bondage to the forces of evil to the curse of sin. Well, to free him required a ransom. And Jesus explains, in order to free the demoniac, I would have to trade places with him. You see, as I meditated on the demoniac, not only did I see myself, but I also saw Jesus. Who else would be banished from the people? Chained up, immobilized. Moved away from the living and towards the dead. Did you know that Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified, was located outside of Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem's a holy city, and that which is unclean doesn't belong in the city. And the book of Hebrews picks up on this and says that Jesus was crucified outside the gates, just as this demoniac was pushed outside the city. As I see this demoniac bleeding profusely from the cuts of the stones that he would use on, on himself, I could not help but see the blood bleeding profusely from the wounds Jesus received from the nails, the thorns, and the spear, crying out in agony. As much as the garrison demoniac would bear the weight of the curse of sin, Jesus too would bear the weight of sin on his shoulders. 
You see, in order to heal the demoniac, this strong, fearless, confident Jesus would have to become weak, fearful, and broken, and that is the price he had to pay. But this passage isn't just about the demoniac and Jesus. But in the final part, it turns its camera angle and zooms in on us. This passage begs us and asks us, how will you respond to Jesus? And the way it it forces us to ask that question is quite clever because there's a word here in our passage that is repeated over and over again. And it's the word beg. Everyone begs Jesus in these verses. The demons beg. The townspeople beg. And the healed demoniac begs. We already saw how the demons begged Jesus, let us leave. But the townspeople also beg Jesus. What do they do? They ask Jesus to leave that place, which kind of is surprising to us. We can understand why demons want nothing to do with Jesus, but why the townspeople? Well, the text tells us it's because these townspeople heard the stories of what happened. They knew who this demoniac was. They see him in his right mind. They put two and two together, and they realize Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. They grasp His power, authority, and superiority, and that makes them want Jesus to leave. Why? Well, as the saying goes, there can only be one cook in the kitchen. There can only be one king in a kingdom. These people want Jesus to leave because if Jesus stays, they must listen to Him. If Jesus stays, they must submit to him. They must give up their sovereignty, their right to rule themselves, and let Jesus be king. Ultimately, we have a power struggle here. And here in the townspeople rejection of Jesus, I can't help but see the main reason why so many today refuse to believe in Jesus. It's not so much because of intellectual problems or emotional problems, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, they don't want Jesus to be real. Because if Jesus really is real, then their lives have to change. Then they can't live for themselves. And they're not ready for that. But unfortunately, by asking Jesus to leave, these town people fail to see that they are just as enslaved as the demoniac once was. They're asking to leave the only one who can make them whole, the only one who could forgive them, the only one who could restore them. And then you have the healed demoniac. While everyone else begs Jesus to leave, what does the healed demoniac say? In verse 18, it reads, as he was getting into the boat, meaning Jesus, 
the man who had seen possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. I love that picture. He's begging Jesus, let me be with you. Isn't that a a picture of discipleship? Where you go, I will follow. Whereas everyone else wants nothing to do with Jesus, for the healed demoniac, he wants everything to do with Jesus. For everyone else who can't picture living with Jesus, this healed demoniac can't picture himself living without Jesus. He begs Jesus, let me go with you. Dear friends, how will you respond to Jesus this morning? We have seen the state of our hearts as the Bible casts a mirror unto our souls and we see just how out of control we really are. We see Jesus who both in his strength and weakness alone is able to rescue us from the darkness of our hearts, from our enslavement to our passions and desires. He alone can save us. The question that remains is, how will you respond? Will you reject Jesus or will you receive him? Will you ask him to go away and hold on to your sovereignty? Or you lay down your right to rule yourself and say, where you go, I want to be. I will follow you. It is my prayer that everyone here comes to Christ this morning. That like the healed demoniac, our prayer would be, I want to be with you. May we lay our lives down at his feet and may that be the cry of our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, a word that humbles us and exalts Christ, a word that points us to see who we really are and reveals our need for the only one who could heal us. I pray, O Lord, that everyone here in this room would respond with the words of the healed demoniac, that we too would long to be wherever you are. And so, Lord, minister to our hearts. Help us to accept this invitation over and over again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.